0: would be a swift word. It would, it would travel from ear and, and head to heart, um, that we would know you more as we look at your scriptures together. Thank you for the reading of it. Uh, now, Lord, we, in, we entrust this time to uh, help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I uh, have a quick story to tell you. Um, I was recently at a coffee shop enjoying a chocolate chip cookie um, with my coffee. And uh, don't worry, I realize what we just read and how horrifying some of it was. This, this will get us there, all right? Um, uh, and all seemed well uh, with the cookie and the coffee uh, until the second bite, and I noticed that there's something off about the taste of the cookie um, that I couldn't quite identify. It was sort of something sour, which doesn't belong in a good chocolate chip cookie. Um, but I uh, sort of was in this working mode. I don't know if, if, am I the only one who's done this, where you're just sort of reaching into the bag and, and eating the food um, sort of on autopilot. I continued to break off pieces to enjoy, um, and I noticed that the side of the bag was a little bit wet on the inside, and I thought, oh, in my mind, somehow maybe moisture has uh, made the cookie taste strange. Um, but there was a nagging sense that that's the, it continued to intensify. The taste was getting more and more sour. Um, so eventually, I was sort of, I was near the, 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 my last bite, and it was, it was decidedly not a cookie taste anymore. Um, and, um, and I reached in, of course, I, for a moment that I decided to break concentration with what I was doing, um, moved my hand just so, just so slightly to the right, and discovered that there was something else in the bag um, that was wrapped in paper, and it was a small pickle, um, which if you know me, um, it's, there's few things that I detest more than a pickle, um, so it was bad. Uh, so the, what had happened was the bag with my cookie in it had also been the bag that my my sandwich for lunch had been put, and this lovely institution, uh, this lovely restaurant, you know, how they sometimes will just give you a pickle with your sandwich. I did not know they did it. And um, so, so my, my cookie was just slowly tainted with sour over time. Uh, I tell you that story because um, uh, language, the words we use is a lot like uh, the cookie and the pickle. Uh, the words we use, the way we speak about life and faith. Uh, are often sharing space with other flavors, so to speak. Uh, Either we continue to use the words, um, even as they slowly become to mean or taste differently, um, or uh, the sourness causes us to never use those words anymore. I could decide I will never now eat a chocolate chip cookie again um, after that experience. Uh, And so we're we're in this series where we're going to look at um, the lost language of salvation, Uh, Words like saved, words like sin, words like sinner, words like righteousness and justice and judgment. Uh, these are words that, uh, that they have many different flavors and meanings, certainly within the church. And most definitely for those who have either left the church or have never been a part of a church. Uh, they are words that we are sometimes uncomfortable with. Um, and certainly uh, teenagers, you can imagine if you started to like talk about sin and judgment and salvation in your classroom discussion at school, uh, depending on the school you go to, um, that could cause people to be like, what are you talking about? Um, maybe even a little bit less kindly than that. Uh, these are words that, 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 are, that can cause discomfort, um, that, that there's, there's sort of a, a sourness that can come over these words over time. What do they mean? And so just for a moment, think about Your first encounters with the word sin, for example. Where did you first hear it? Perhaps there's a person in particular you can imagine speaking that word for the first time. Uh, Or judgment. Or righteousness. Or salvation. Uh, Maybe there's a book or a preacher that wielded them in a particular way that was either helpful or not helpful. Um, uh, perhaps you can hear those words being used by people outside the church as a way to talk about how foolish Christianity seems to be. Uh, maybe there's another way in which your word, the, the, these words are sort of I- impacted and it could just very well be you don't necessarily see it, but the cultural waters that we live in have a certain idea of what salvation means, what, what um, sin means, that impact the way we think. They are the... The pickle in, next to the, the cookie, so to speak. I will no longer use that metaphor, by the way. <laughs> I'll try, it's just so yeah. good. Um, so our hope over this series is to recover some of these words from Scripture by moving through the story of Moses um, in the book of Exodus. And I just want to quickly say two things about that. Um, uh, the, the Bible happens to not be a textbook, and it's not a dictionary, uh, which, is, which is actually really good news. Um, there, there are no bolded sections with like part of speech and definitions next to any of these terms. God God's word in all its diversity, in all its writings, and all its genre, um, it, together finding its conclusion in Christ uh, gives meaning and shape to these words. Uh, and, and so we're going to go to the scripture to help us find um, and reclaim and, and rediscover what some of these words mean. Um, but, but the other thing I want to say about that very carefully is that also... That doesn't mean that what we're going to do is to try to find and extract some purely objective um, all-time truth that we can sort of take blinders off of all we know about life and experience and and sort of discern this this, this pure definition from the Bible. Uh, That's not the way the Bible works. The Bible actually speaks to us presently, um, and it speaks into your life. And so there's no way to try to, you can't take yourself out of your own body and experience. So we go to the Scriptures with our experience, with our lives, and by God's grace, through his Holy Spirit, he will reveal himself to us in these words as we think about them. Uh, language is important, brothers and sisters, because uh, the language of Scripture it gives us the truth of who God is. It tells us who we are. It tells us how Jesus saves us um, at all times um, and in this time and place. So that's what we're up to. Uh, we're going to go through Exodus over the rest of the fall that will lead us beautifully into Advent. Uh, so, so Exodus, we begin with Exodus today. Um, and as, as, as Susan read, Exodus begins notably where? It begins in slavery. And if you flip all the way to the back, uh, where does Exodus end in the final chapter? It ends at the tabernacle. Exodus begins, um, many of the commentators, this is like the, the line if you read a commentary on Exodus, Exodus, in some form or another, begins in slavery and ends in worship, in God's presence. So how does it happen? How does God bring about his people out of slavery to worship? Um, and the answer to that is God is the one who saves. God's the one who leads out. Exodus. Uh, and so we're going to begin by looking at that today. And, and here's, here's the, so series, right? Now we're, we're to today, right? Just follow with me, um, God's salvation gives us courage for life. That's where we are today. God's salvation, that saving power from from, salvation, from slavery to worship, God's salvation gives us courage for life. Uh, so what is salvation? That's where we are. What is salvation according to this passage? Where, how do we see it? Um, well, uh, Genesis ends with, as I said, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis uh, ends with the people of Israel um, and Egypt being spared from famine. If you remember the story of Joseph, right? Uh, God spares um, Joseph and his family, uh, and then then through Joseph, all of Egypt from famine, uh, and and Joseph's life at the end, uh, it comes to an end, he's buried, Um, and then from the end of Genesis to what Susan read this morning, about 400 years have passed. 400 years. 400 years. Um, 400 years have passed, uh, and the story then picks up, in verse eight. So 400 years of life together. Joseph's family and his descendants with the people of Egypt. And then in verse eight, what happens? Uh, People mess up what God God does. This is a theme of life. Uh, Verse eight tells us that a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. So 400 years and now a king who's got a different idea. Uh, And we see who this Pharaoh is right away. What does Pharaoh do? Uh, he looks at the people of Israel and he says they're too numerous. The people we've dwelled with for generations, he now says, are too numerous and he sees them as threat. And what he does is actually something that humans have done um, for, the, for the history of time. Uh, they, he, he uses his seat, seat of authority to justify racist hate and oppression uh, against these foreigners who he shares his land with. Uh, and he decides that he's going to deal shrewdly with them. Now it's it, it's he's wielding his authority because um, what we know is it's actually really unlikely that the Hebrew uh, the Israelites outnumbered the Egyptians. Uh, he's actually he's making up a story to justify oppression, uh, because just th- think about what happened, right? Joseph and his family, small group, Egyptian nation absorbs that. It's really unlikely that they're actually uh, they actually are outnumbered by them, but he's dealing shrewdly with them by by just so that he can justify his acts of corruption. Uh, And Pharaoh decides on a program of oppression, to brutally oppress the people of Israel in every way. Uh, And he finds that the more he does it, the more that they're fruitful, the more that they multiply. Uh, He orders the murder. So just going, what what is Pharaoh up to? He orders the murder of every Hebrew boy at the hands of the midwives. Um, And when that fails, notice that the second command, he, he doesn't just go through the midwives. He then says, uh, in verse 22, he, he says, Then Pharaoh gave the order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is, boy that is born must be thrown in the Nile. So Pharaoh intensifies his, his oppression by enlisting all of his people. If you find a Hebrew boy, cast him in the Nile. Uh, and Robert Alter, the um, famous uh, Old Testament scholar, he, he writes that uh, the death of the boys, he, the effect of this is that it will eradicate the people, slowly but surely, and... The other aim of that is then the life of women are, are then are, are left for exploitation and assimilation to the empire. So in the midst of this horror, the, the Pharaoh subjugates the people of Israel to slave labor as well. Um, so there's the, the, the genocide and then there's the slave labor. And the, the text, like in the, the original text, there's, some, there's just this emphasis on helping us see how brutal the work and the labor is. There's, there's a mental psychological, physical oppression that that actually makes their lives bitter, right? The text says bitter, which I didn't realize this is is the reason for the bitter herbs in the Passover meal, uh, to remember the bitterness of that oppression. Um, The word ruthless in verse 14 is actually rooted in something more like a crushing crushing break into pieces to pulverize. It's pulverizing labor is what they're after. Uh, And... And and the word work, you'll notice in the English translation, it's translated into various words just to help us, but it's all the same word, right? Work, 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 work. Again, five times, I think, in that passage um, it's translated. Now, what's interesting about that word and why I'm focusing on it and why I think it's important is because that same word that's translated for work in that passage, in verses particularly, I think, verse 12, 13, 14, um, is it can also be translated in another context simply to serve. So the way you might serve your family tonight at dinner, um, or the way uh, you might uh, somebody at a grocery store might help you—it's just sort of a generic, neutral serve. It can be translated that, as that as well. Um, it also has another way of being translated. Uh, what does uh, Moses famously tell Pharaoh? Let my, Let my people go. Right? We've all heard that. Um, but what's the other part of that? What does he also say after that? so that they may worship, so that they may serve, so that they may worship me. Uh, in Exodus 4, uh, this is, God is telling Moses what to say to Pharaoh. He says, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. Same word. work, Brutal work, neutral serve, and worship. The word for worship, it shares the same root. And so here's what happens. When God is the object of that word, when God is the object, it means to worship. So, so in other words, there's a spiritual element to the oppression of the Israelites. It's not just that the work they're doing and being made to do is morally wrong. It's, there, there's, a, there's a spiritual enslavement that's happening. When, when Pharaoh... When work is under Pharaoh, it's enslavement, but when it's offered to God, the word is worship. Their work is wrong, not just because it's oppression, but it's for the wrong master, is what the text is telling us, what Exodus tells us. And so, therefore, we learn something really important about God's salvation. It is liberation from captivity. It's liberation from captivity. It's, it's captivity, slavery to freedom, but not just bondage in general to freedom in general, kind of in the abstract. It's bondage to any other master but God, to freedom of worshiping God as your only master and Lord. A life in which all my labor is bitter labor becomes a life of worship. So salvation, brothers and sisters, means liberation to be free in the worship of God. And so, so right away, just think about how this hits us now. Right away, um, how freedom of God's salvation, uh, it runs against your, probably your default, all of our default definitions of what freedom is. Uh, freedom for most of us, if we're honest, is simply has to do with the ability to do whatever you want. Salvation gives us freedom in the scripture and and the scriptures actually begin in an entirely different way. Freedom is worship. Everything else is slavery. And so what that means is then is that all my life, all my work, all my labors, all the fruit of all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, um, they are either going to be manifested in crushing labor for another master or in worship of the one true God. So if anything else gives you your sense of purpose or meaning other than God, brothers and sisters, it is your master. And your life will be filled with bitter labor. Your job, your identity, the approval of others, uh, the disapproval of others. The Bible tells us you're only free when you're ravished by God and you worship him as Lord of all. So that's, that's worship. That, that, I'm sorry, that's salvation. That's what it is. It moves us from slavery to freedom, and freedom is the worship of God. So how does it work? Uh, How does that work, and how does the passage show us that? Um, One of the great themes of Scripture, uh, and certainly what we saw when we went through Matthew, um, is is how God's salvation is actually worked out in and through weakness. Uh, The power of salvation that moves us from bondage to worship does not primarily come through seats of power, Um, but through the margins of life. So if you think about the story so far, think about the characters that that we heard in the passage. Uh, In in particular, who who are the central characters who who work salvation? Uh, In the ancient Near East, you're probably familiar with this now. Um, If you've you've been around the scriptures, if you've read read the scriptures, you know that it's rare for a woman to occupy a position of authority in the ancient Near East. Um, Men are simply just higher on the social hierarchy. Uh, as it's arranged. Um, and yet, who are the heroes of the story? Five women. Incredibly, five women God uses to bring salvation for His people. Um, just really quick, let's just tick through them. Uh, you have the two midwives, Sifra and Pua. Uh, Sifra, by the way, meaning beautiful one, and, and Pua meaning splendid one. Uh, beautiful names. I don't know any Sifras or Pua. Do we? I'm curious if anybody. I don't know. Anyway, if you know somebody, I'd love to, I'd love to hear about that. Um, so they, they, it's likely, though, that it might seem strange to you. So the Israelites are multiplying. There's lots of them. Why are there only two midwives? Uh, what the commentators say is that it's likely that they're, these are sort of two, um, two supervisors of what would be like whole battalions of midwives. So, so in a sense, what, what, what that, why that's significant is that what they decide to do, they are likely having the rest of the midwives carry out as well. Um, and they're asked to execute any baby boy born to the Hebrews. And the text tells us that um, even in the face of this, this sort of gruesome command, uh, from a, a, a seat of power that held their lives, right, in the palm of his hand, yeah, I mean, could snuff them out in a moment. Uh, in verse 17, it says, They feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Uh, heroes of the story. Incredible. Uh, Moses um, is born uh, because of the courage of his mother and his sister and the pharaoh's daughter to save the life of his boy, of this boy. So, so God uses the ingenuity and the courage of these wisdom to bring forth good. God uses the weak to overcome the powerful forms. Um, they work justice and righteousness for the people without being drawn into sort of a self delusion of godlike authority. Because on the other hand, right? Who who do they contrast in the story? Uh, you have Pharaoh, of course. Uh, you have Pharaoh who who administers grave injustice from his seat of power uh, and the name of good for his people. Uh, he proposes to deal shrewdly with the Israelites. But if you actually take time to think about it and think about his policies, they're all complete foolishness toward his own ends. They don't make any sense. You're killing your slave population. You're, you know it, it doesn't add up, right? Right. Um, it's, it's all foolishness, let alone horrific. Uh, and then Moses, at, le- at least at this point, Moses is best positioned in the story to maybe do something at this point. He's got, he's got kind of a seat of inside knowledge and authority and, and, and awareness of, his, of, of the Israelites. Um, and yet his first acts are total disasters. <laughs> he, uh, he attempts to save uh, and he ends up murdering. Uh, he tries to intervene and he draws further contempt and alienation from his people. And by the end of the, the passage we read, he's on the run. He's got no place to go. The, the point uh, I'm trying to make, and I think that the, the passage makes, is that God, um, God works through weakness. He works through those on the margins. Not only that, that's where he brings blessing. So again, just follow with me. The midwives, they move from having to participate in genocide to being uh, an instrument of Pharaoh, to being blessed by God and each given their own family. Uh, Moses' mother not only receives back her son's life, her son's life is spared, she receives back her son for a brief time and she's paid for it. <laughs> Did you catch that? They actually pay her to care for her own son. She goes down to the Nile. So think of what the text is telling. She goes down to the Nile, the place that they're supposed to execute her child. And she lets her child go into a basket. And she receives back that child from the waters of death. Do you know that the the word for basket in that passage, it's it's translated one other place. And it's the same word that we use for uh, Noah's Ark. Isn't that incredible? God saves, he brings blessing and deliverance upon those on the margins, the weak. He rescues her son from the waters of death. So, so how does salvation work? Um, here, here it is, right? It, in the darkest moments of Israel's captivity, God is at work. God is rescuing through weakness. God is rescuing on the margins. Uh, it's the movement of all of Scripture, Just as Moses begins his life on the margins under threat of death of an empire, so we know who else begins his life that way. Jesus. Jesus' life begins under threat of an empire. Just as the midwives thwart Pharaoh in the seat of power, the magi will thwart Herod. Just as Moses' mother rescues in desperate faith, so Mary Mary will trust in God, fleeing to save her life's son. At every turn, violent power, kind of a hysterical fanaticism, and senseless murder of children, comes to, to coming to snuff out the weak. God's salvation prevails at every turn, and that that's that's where let's let's just arrive at the cross, right? That in a single day, that's where it all comes to a point. Uh, Christopher Wright writes, On the cross, Jesus Christ demonstrated the indestructible determination of God's saving love to meet the implacable madness of human and satanic hatred and lethal violence against the innocent. There Jesus suffered it. Jesus absorbed it. He paid for it. He triumphed over it for our sakes. He took the lowest form as a servant, coming to serve rather than be served and giving up his life in the most humiliating form. And when all seemed dark and lost, there God defeated death, and brought life. God works salvation in weakness. And so if that's true, if that's true, um, then then you can have assurance that God's salvation, your freedom from bondage, cannot be deterred by any hardship or any evil in your life. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, anybody know Kurt Vonnegut? Wrote, famously Slaughterhouse Five, you probably were forced to read it in school, um, but he, he has this famous lecture where he talks about the shape of stories, um, and he's sort of this like, you know, tall, lanky, like straggly-haired writer, and he's very, you know, um, he's an interesting character, but he has this famous uh, uh, lecture that he does on the shape of stories, and he has this chalkboard behind him, and he takes a mark, uh, a, a chalk, a chalk, chalkboard, um, and he draws the shape of story, so he starts off with, um, you know, a, bo- a classic boy meets girl, right? Boys down in the dumps, he meets the girl, the line goes up, finds out that the girl really doesn't like him, the line goes down, right? He does Cinderella, right? Starts down real low, then things are really bad, then the shoe fits, you know? And, and so he does the shape of all, the, of all these stories. Um, and then he gets to Hamlet. Oh, oh, no, sorry, one more. He does Metamorphosis by Kafka. Story about a guy who wakes up as a cockroach. But basically the line is here and then it just gets lower, right? Um, uh, the Ham- he does Hamlet then. Uh, and, and, he just draws kind of, he talks through Hamlet and he does a straight line. And he does a straight line because what, and, and by the end, Hamlet is just one straight line. Um, and he says, uh, he says, Hamlet is a work of genius. Um, but because the line doesn't go up or down. Uh, he says, because at every point in Hamlet, you kind of actually don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. uh. He says, I, I'm not proving to you that Hamlet is, is a work of great boredom. You might, you might think so, one line. Um, but he says it's a masterpiece because it tells the truth. And then listen to what Kurt Vonnegut says. He says, um, it tells the truth because we don't know enough about life to know what good news is. And the, bad, and the bad news is. And we respond to that. We pretend to know what the good news is and the bad news is. Uh, now He's saying something profound. When we serve any other master but God, we we do actually operate on some bold assumption that we know what good news is and bad news is, usually shaped by our tiny view of life that revolves around us. The good news of the way God's salvation works is that that actually we can say to Kurt, we do know. Um, we, We know the God who works salvation and how he does it. And, and what that means is you can know, you do know enough about the good news and bad news to know that even in the darkest moments of your life, nothing can separate you from God's love. You just, you look to the cross. And, and not only that, you can be sure, so not only can nothing separate you from the love of God, but you can be sure it, if your field of life right now is filled with trouble, you can be sure that God is bringing about salvation in your midst. Think about a common person of Israel in the time of this story. They have no idea who these midwives are. They have no idea about Moses. But but God is bringing about salvation in their midst. We can say audaciously with Paul in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. This is strange, but if you know the salvation and the way God brings it, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's how it works in the weakness, in the margins of our lives. Um, So what difference does it make as a way to close? Um, it gives us courage for life. And, and just quickly promise, knowing what's true, knowing what to do. Uh, if God's salvation truly sets us free, then the way He sets us free is not limited by my trials and weakness, but actually in and through them. Um, the salvation has, has a movement to it, right, a motion to it. it gives us courage. Um, so know what's true. Uh, the midwives, uh, just just go back, verse 17, they have this fundamental choice. To kill or be killed. You either kill that baby or you're going to be killed by me. Uh, and and what do they do? Do you guys notice that they tell, they tell what seems to be a lie? You see, it's kind of silly. Uh, they say, we can't actually kill them because the births happen so quickly we can't get there in time. Now, a lot of people get hung up about this question. Did they sin or not in lying? Um, I would just submit to you that that might be the wrong question to ask. Um, Not because we're not concerned with sin, but because that's actually not what's going on here. Um, What's going on here um, is, remember back the the delusion of Pharaoh to say that they're too numerous for us, we must subjugate them. Every oppressor tells a lie to justify their acts. It's the only way to be an oppressor. You have to spin a lie. And too numerous. We have to enslave them. They might rise up against us. What the midwives are doing is they're actually entering in and unmasking the absurdity of Pharaoh's lies. Uh, the women are so vigorous we can't get there in time. It's silly. They're, they're so numerous they're going to overcome us, right? Think about the way sometimes our rhetoric about like, immigrants, right? All, they're all rapists and murderers. And then you can sort of, a way to unmask that is to say, yeah, they're, they're going to fly around our neighborhoods at night. Right? and attack us. See, that's what they're doing. They're entering into the absurdity of the lie about who the Israelites are, and they're unmasking it by saying, yeah, they're so wicked and so crazy and so unlike us, their births happen so quickly. We can't even get there in time. They're pointing to Pharaoh's lie. And this is actually there's actually a decent amount of scholarship on this. This is a huge part of African-American folklore. They confronted the lie of slavery by telling stories and, and singing songs, that unmasked the lie of their oppression. Um, this, is not, this is what oppressed people have done um, in every instance. They, they unmask the lie by confronting it, by entering into it and showing how ridiculous it is. Now, what's the point of me sort of pointing all that out to you? It's interesting. It kind of shows you how brave and cool these midwives are in some ways. Um, but, but the point is they, they confront the lie that keeps them captive. Um, the lie that, that we also then need to face, and this is what you need to know, is that, is that we can actually bring about our salvation by ourselves. Um, we can save ourselves. Uh, turn, salvation, here's, here's what it means for you today. It means I turn from the lie that holds me captive, that I can save myself, and I turn to the God who saves Uh, Your faith does not save you. Uh, Your sin is an active participation in your own bondage. Uh, It's by grace, it's by God's grace that you are saved. So there's there's a lie for you to turn from that holds you in oppression, that you can save yourself, and you can't. It's only by God's grace that you're saved, not by works. It's a gift of God. Paul tells us. So then what to do? That's what to know. Unmask that lie in your life. You can't save yourself. Then what to do? Well, first, um, know, know what to do. Uh, your sin um, calls you to repent. The first thing to do is, is confess and repent for your sins. Your sin is personal. You, when you turn from God, you're turning from a personal God to serve another. And when I turn from my sin, I turn to Christ. So confess your sins. Uh, This is the way you you participate. You you live in the salvation you've been given. Um, And and notably, because remember how salvation works? Christ meets you at your weakest points. Where you confess your sin, there Christ meets you. That's how he works. He's He's not waiting for you to tell him how great you are. He wants to meet you in your sin. Because only he can deal with it. Um, so that's, that's, that's the first thing to do. Um, and then the second thing, by way of closing. Um, when you turn to God, you choose then to, to turn to his salvation, to receive it, means that you then live for him. Uh, you, at that fundamental choice, what, what are the midwives? Why did they make their decision? Because they feared God. They lived in such a way that reflected who they served, who their master was. And so, just just for a moment, think about the realities of the situation that they're facing um, in Egypt. Uh, there's there's a deliberately inflamed xenophobia. There's the fear of being uh, uh, of being used as a tool of political persuasion, and then brutal repression. Um, there's there's abuse of basic human rights. And so, I raise that and remind that to, to remind you that the story of Exodus is not just about a spiritual reality only. Um, it's also it reflects the way that humans sin against each other. Uh, the spiritual reality of Exodus and the physical reality are not neatly separated. And so we have courage then. We need the courage to face not only the spiritual truth about us, but also the physical manifestation of sin in the world. Uh, this is why God calls his people in, 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 in later in Exodus to not oppress the foreigner Because you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So so what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that when you receive God's salvation, what the story of Exodus shows us is that um, you then turn and have a particular heart for people who are weak, for people who are oppressed, for people who have nothing. That's a mark of God's people. Uh, if, it's, if, if our salvation is only spiritual, then we can conceive of a salvation that permits me to ignore the poor and oppressed. Or if I'm poor and oppressed, to only spiritualize my condition. If it's only political and economic and social, then we can conceive of a salvation that has nothing to do with our lives before the living God. Or if I'm poor and oppressed, to have no hope outside of my condition. D- do you see what I'm saying? If, if we know that God works in the margins and the weaknesses of life, then we become a kind of people who have courage to face those who are weak, to care for those who are, who are oppressed, to care for the minority, to care for the foreigner. We become the, pe- the kind of people who have a heart and a mind to care for those who are in need. So, so life with Christ, let me try to sum that all up in one sentence, right? Life with Christ means both. Is it social justice or is it personal salvation? Yes. I heard somebody say it. Yes. Right? It's not an either or. Exodus leads us to seek justice and it leads us to be formed like Christ. And they're the same thing. It, I should say they, they move at the same time in us. Uh, I invite the worship team to come forward. Um, and this requires courage, of course, brothers and sisters. It requires courage to face these things. Um, so as we just end by turning you back, look to Jesus this week. Um, and as we go through this, this series, uh, ask yourself, where in my life am I subtly given, subtly, subtly given over to work rather than to worship? Where in my life am I passive in the face of those who are weak? Where in my life can I live courageously for the weak and oppressed, both physically and spiritually? God's salvation, brothers and sisters, delivers us from bondage to sin and self the freedom of worshiping the one true God. And that gives us courage to face anything that is in your life today. Let's, let's stand together and worship this God.